there's such a will to just abandon any kind of normative practice. Oh, yes. And, and yet there, you still have these instances where you're able to hold them to account where they have occasionally. To, yeah. They have yeah. to ruefully say, yeah, you got us. And, mm-hmm. and so you're vesting faith in a normative process being able to function here, despite the stated and openly stated will of all these people to just be like, yeah. just to like to declare like the new president of the AAP, even while they're doing this, he's making these statements about how it's necessary. We all know, we know what we need to know, even though that's the question that we're supposed to be answering. He's making these conclusory statements right at the beginning of the process. And yet you're still trusting that the process can be made to work despite the evidence of their I don't want to call it malfeasance. They gave you the runaround for years. Okay, you're assigning trust to me. What makes you think I'm trusting? You are about to embark upon the great crusade. The only... The eyes of the world are upon you. Hi, this is Wesley Yang. You're listening to the Year Zero podcast, which is hosted at Substack, where listeners can support this work that I'm doing. Wesley Yang... Dot substack.com. Your task will not be an easy one. ahead will be long. We're going to make sure that society wins. Okay, we're, so we're here with Julia Mason, who is a pediatrician operating outside of Portland. She actually lives in Portland. And she's become a, an important voice, pointing out in peer-reviewed articles the absence of any real evidence base on behalf of pediatric gender medicine, as they call it, and has become a sort of unlikely activist within the American Academy of Pediatrics, whose endorsement of the practice back in 2008 has been really crucial for the rapid spread and scaling up of a practice that never really had an evidence base to begin with as she discovered, and in part through her efforts, the rest of us have discovered in recent years. I'm talking to her at a key inflection point in the trajectory of this practice, where a couple of weeks ago, I think it was at this point, the American Academy of Pediatrics agreed to do something that Dr. Mason has been attempting to get them to do for several years, which is to undertake a comprehensive review of the evidence which has been done in a couple of different countries, both of which found, all of which found that no, in fact, there is no real high quality evidence base in support of this practice. And as a result, those European countries have been uh, restricting it to uh, research settings. And we're going to see what happens when the American Academy of Pediatrics, which for many years engaged in all kinds of parliamentary ledger domain to prevent a measure that Dr. Mason has attempted to bring to the fore at meetings of the Academy to undertake this review themselves. And they recently just said, oh, we're going to continue to do this for the meantime, but but we're also going to undertake this review. So I want to talk to Dr. Mason about this. It's not quite a moment for a victory lap, but it is a moment where something that she has been seeking has come to pass. And uh, first of all, what's her reaction to the news? And then Let's go back and uh, retrace our steps to how we got here. Hi, thanks for having me. I guess at this point, I'm cautiously optimistic. Mm -hmm. It is really great to hear the American Academy of Pediatrics leadership 
use the term systematic review of the evidence, which is exactly what I've been asking for. Um, they, of course, don't mention me <laughs> in their mm. press release. But so it was, it was a very interesting press release because they're like, on the one hand, we're going to re-up the 2018 statement that said that there's only one way to respond to a gender dysphoric child, and that's to affirm them, which means social transition followed by puberty blockers, followed by cross-sex hormones, and then surgeries. But we're also going to undertake a systematic review of the evidence, and then we'll see if that modifies our recommendations. And it's just, they're paradoxical, the two things, but that's what they said at the same time. So these paradoxical statements that are being made simultaneously, they could push in either direction. So what is your read on which direction this is pushing ultimately? What I'm, I predict that what they're going to do is continue a process they've already started, which is to redefine affirmative care while loudly maintaining that they've always been in favor of affirmative care. We've always been at war with East Asia. Yeah. So they've, it's, they talk about affirmative care. The way it's de defined in the 2018 statement is as social transition followed by puberty blockers followed like that. But I had an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal with Lior Sapir from Manhattan Institute, and we were criticizing the American Academy of Pediatrics. And then the American Academy of Pediatrics responded in the pages of the Wall Street Journal. And they said that we had it wrong and that affirmative care doesn't mean medical treatment. In fact, for the vast majority of kids, it's the opposite. Mm -hmm. And my reaction was awesome. Tell me more about this. What is this new version of affirmative care that's the opposite of medicalization? And of course, they didn't respond to me. That's, that was a year ago that they made this claim that it was us. It was myself and Leah Sapor that were using an incorrect diagnosis, an incorrect definition for affirmative care. So I think that's their strategy and they're going to, they're going to continue with it. They're going to slowly, as quietly as they can change the definition to affirmative care to be something more like what's happening in the European countries who have mm. already done systematic reviews of the evidence, found the evidence for the medicalization, for the modification of sex traits via hormones and surgery to be weak. And they're now leading with basically psychological support versus medical reactions. So the lies, or I won't call them the lies, but the contradictory statements, mm -hmm. the maintaining of two things that cannot be true at the same time, seems to be a deliberate part of their messaging strategy. It's not exactly dialectical, but it is easing us into a particular direction. What makes you confident that it's going towards sanity rather than making a feint in the direction of sanity in order to launder a move that would continue a non-stain right. status quo? I guess because there have been so many countries that have already reversed course that we're really an outlier. It's the United States and Canada that are out of step with most of the world on this topic. So I can't imagine how they keep saying this is fine, especially when Chen et al., the 2023 publication in the New England Journal of Medicine, 
reported, and this is an NIH-funded study, that of 315 patients getting what was supposed to be the best gender care in the world at the top gender clinics in the country, they had two suicides hmm. out of 315 patients. That's yeah. That should have set, that should have shut down the whole thing. If you have two deaths mm-hmm. out of 315 patients who were pre-screened for suicidality, that's that's stunning. I don't know. And if and yes, they said they were going to report on eight measures, and then they only reported on two. And you can only imagine that the six they chose not to report on are because those didn't get better. Like they're trying their hardest to build an evidence base and it is not happening. Mm. It doesn't, it seems like the medical sex trait modification does not even match the improvements expected for a placebo. It seems Mm. to be actively harmful. Mm. That is what I've seen in my personal circle, like amongst people where I've been, in the same room with them or in the same room with their parents. Yes. The only really bad outcomes have been in children who were being affirmed, mm-hmm. which is the exact opposite of what parents are told mm-hmm. if they go to a gender clinic with their child. Mm-hmm. And by really bad outcomes, you mean self-suicide. Uh, hospitalizations for self-harm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's outside of clinical settings, but just in. Yeah. These are just classmates of my kids Mm -hmm. and yeah, it hasn't, I've been a very fortunate pediatrician in that I've been a pediatrician for almost 30 years and I haven't had a patient commit suicide Mm -hmm. for any reason. Yes. And I'm partly that's because suicide, although we hear about it a lot, is actually a rare phenomenon. Yes. Thank goodness. And in children. In, in children. general, but also especially in children. Yeah. Suicide rates go way up when people are older. Yeah. Suicide attempts happen much, much, much more often than, right. than completed suicides. Yes. And because but, the baseline is so low, you can rise 300% in a year almost as a function of statistical noise. Right. It's hard. It's really because hard it's, to on rare events. Right. It's like two in a hundred thousand can become eight in a hundred thousand just by random chance within a yeah. certain population. I think the best suicide statistic within the gender, pediatric gender field is Michael Biggs, who's a sociologist at Oxford. He did a FOIA, he did a freedom of information request, and he got statistics from the Tavistock JIDS, which is the, which still is, I guess, the world's largest gender clinic. And over a period of 10 years, looking at 15,000 patients, mm. there were four completed suicides. Yes. And two of them were patients who were being treated, and two of them were patients who were still on the waiting list. Mm. Mm. And so even though you can't really give strong statistics, like th- the statistics on that are hard, it is... Even these weak statistics show that there's there apparently is no difference between being treated and being not treated right. for this yeah. population of kids. And that rate, four out of 15,000 over a period of 10 years, yeah. is it's higher than the background rate for the entire juvenile population, but it's roughly equivalent to the rate of completed suicide for kids with OCD 
uh, severe anxiety, depression, diagnoses yeah. like that. And then four out of 15,000 versus two out of 315. Amazing. Amazing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Like we are not, we're number one. <laughs> it's, just, yeah. it's not great. So explain this large effort, just summarize this effort to build a, an evidence base through the NIH and the, they invested some hundreds or tens of millions in, in mm -hmm. a series of studies. And we've had one. I think it was report. less than 10 million, but it was millions. Okay. It was millions of dollars. Millions? It was yeah. a multi-city study. We've been waiting for results for so long. Like I can't So they remember. started in like Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. It started right. I can't say exactly, but it started, yeah. Something okay. like twenty fifteen. Cause I can just remember as I was getting into the topic in late twenty eighteen and then early twenty nineteen. And I can remember by late twenty nineteen being like, Where's that paper? Seems like we should be hearing about that. Because yes. the interesting thing is if the National Institute of Health funds your paper, you need to be transparent about what you're doing, what you're planning to do, mm -hmm. which is why I can say that they said they were going to report on eight things and they only reported on two. Mm -hmm. And one of the two they reported on was appearance congruence. Yeah. If you're female and you take testosterone, you're going to grow a beard and then your appearance will be more congruent with how you <laughs> think it should be. But I just don't think that's a good justification for all of right. the morbidity and mortality that we're observing. So Michael Biggs was able to get a, his hands on a study that was announced and then never published. That's true. Yeah. Yes. At the Tavistock to great fanfare. They said, we're going to study this. We're going to do trial. And then years went by. We never heard anything about it. And then he was able to do some FOIA and get a hold of the results. And the results showed increased uh, self-harm and suicidality. And yeah. it had been... They had kept track of it to the point where they had done that, but they did not publish it. We're more years into this ongoing NIH trial that only produced this one very partial report. Mm -hmm. Is there a, a way to get a hold of their other data or? Oh, that is a good question. I am not a lawyer and yeah. I don't know, but perhaps there is because it is government money. Yeah. Maybe there's a way to get into mm -hmm. the data more than we have. Cause yeah, I'm really curious to see. Mm -hmm. the cross tabs on their, on their spreadsheets. I'd love to see how that went. So I have described you on Twitter as a workaday pediatrician mm -hmm. based upon some statements that you've made. You were not involved in governance issues at the American Academy of Pediatrics prior mm -hmm. to 2019, 2020. Is that yeah, right? Okay. Can you talk about your story from going just a, sure. so just yeah, a person just... with their own little practice to somebody who is a <laughs> Involved in governance issues. thorn in the AAK. side. I am now a thorn in the side of the American Academy of Pediatrics. Yeah, so I've been a pediatrician for almost 30 years. And I've done mostly office pediatrics. I've done some work as a hospitalist, was a newborn hospitalist for a while. And I've been practicing in the Portland, Oregon area in a suburb, a working class suburb of Portland called Gresham for about 10 years now. Hmm. And the trans phenomenon snuck up on me there. It wasn't as much of an overwhelming phenomenon as I think it was for my colleagues that practice here in Portland, because mm. this does seem to be an upper middle class phenomenon for the most part. There, There is also an increased incidence in sort of children that are in foster care, children that are extremely distressed, yes. have, have higher rates of taking on this identity. But 
the the numbers are really coming from upper middle class children of liberals, really. <laughs> that seems yeah. to be how it's going. And, now, there is a yeah. big effort to try to get to working class kids, the children of migrant workers. I've heard about this. Somebody was saying it's Chico or Chino, I'm not sure. Some mm -hmm. Northern California area that it's like 80% Mexican migrant workers. And the parents are all disengaged. They don't speak the language. And so the teachers there actually have a, a really free hand. And so one, what should, it's, there's, there are efforts they may not be catching. To get to, people to see their true selves. To be more working class, to be more multiracial, to speak yeah. to new immigrants and, awesome. and to get them in on this. But yes. Hopefully the whole thing blows up before they're successful with so, that. But you did I mean, not I you and succeed. I both met, we both met the mom last year in Anaheim whose daughter, Ab Abigail whose daughter was taken into foster care. Yeah, Abigail yes. Martinez. Absolutely. And so she does not fit this profile. Not at all. That is a, yeah. But you did so, not yeah. see what Lisa Lippman saw with four friends coming out all at once. That's what you didn't see. I didn't know. I didn't see that in my practice. My first trans patient was a female who came to me and had been coming to our practice for a while, but I was new in the practice and said, I'm trans, I'm actually a boy. And this was a classic sort of DSM-5 story where from the age, as soon as she could speak from the age of two or three, she insisted there's been a terrible mistake. She is one of twin girls and I've heard of that before, but mm. anyway, she was, she's like, no, that one's a girl, I'm a boy. And I, and I was like, oh yeah, transgender, that's a thing, I've, I've heard of it. And I know there's a clinic, there's a clinic over at the Children's Hospital, so I will refer you there. And I referred her there or him there and he came back and he's, oh my God, testosterone's a shot. I hate shots, I hate needles. And so I volunteered that he could come to us with the testosterone, we would give him the shot. We couldn't charge for it, we just wanna help out our patient. And I watched him for the next more than five years. Mm. And he did transform physically. He looked, he looked male to begin with, but then he looked more male as he got okay. mustache and beard and the voice changed. But he really didn't thrive the way that the enthusiasts for this say that kids thrive when they're able to be their true selves. Mm. He graduated from high school, but he didn't go to college. He didn't mm. learn a trade. He was just, mm. he was just working one sort of minimum wage job after another mm. and very frustrated with his personal life. He told me once on a down day that like, every time I have a girlfriend, they leave me for a real boy. Mm. And mm. so it was just like getting by and <laughs> I don't see people after they're 21. So I'm not sure how mm -hmm. he's doing now. The second patient that came so into me. You instantly yeah. called him he and have done that continuously. I've done that. Yeah. And no one I, had like, like that person. No one had instructed you to do that. You just did it. Right. I just it, did it. Yeah. It's yeah. It's, right. it's a tricky thing. It's a tricky thing because if you use one set of pronouns, you offend one portion of the population. And if you use another set of pronouns, you offend another portion of the population. Mm. And I really do find myself in this weird place where I'm a liberal. I've always been a liberal and my tribe says you have to use whatever pronouns they say, but then real reality doesn't always agree with uh with what my tribe dictates but the so memo the, had not gone out to you from your tribe at, at when you first encountered it oh. you were not under pressure to do that you just instinctively i did it as, naturally though yeah as because a liberal the and a caring asked me yeah uh -huh. 
pediatrician, you just did it. And that's how it happened. At that time, my, at that time, my electronic medical record didn't really have a way to, to record this. (laughs) You could put in a nickname. So I put in the new nickname underneath and I think I might've put in the new nickname and then like he, him, I can't remember. But now of course the software has all sorts of ways. And (laughs) At right. least now it's not. Now it's compulsory I use Athena. To I use a th- yeah. It is. Right. There's a there's an empty gender <laughs> section in every child's chart, which yeah, yeah. bugs me. Right. But Athena, I use a electronic medical record system called Athena. Yeah. And they at least ch- don't change the sex marker. Mm. But at the hospital, right, they use Epic. And Epic is customized for each hospital. So we can't really say what Epic does because Epic is different in every hospital. It's part of their business plan. They, right. The hospitals spend a lot of money getting their own customized Epic. They won't make a generic Epic for anybody. But anyway, most hospitals, Epic, will actually change the sex marker, which I find to be wrong yes. and dangerous. Yes. There, anyway, there was discussion of a paper to, at Genspect that came out arguing that it's harmful to insist on the sex it, marker. It is harmful. Yeah. There's multiple examples of how that leads to harm. No, it was arguing that it's harmful to keep the, the sex marker. Oh, uh, boy. Yeah, and, and it was in like a major journal. Anyway, so yeah. go on. So the second kid that came in, came in, I'll use female pronouns here, with her mother and yeah. was not convincing and did not have a lifelong history, but yeah. really came in for the for the purpose of getting the referral like that mm. was the point of the appointment right i think it was a physical but the point of the appointment was to get a referral and so i was like okay i put in the referral and i expected that there would be like a differential diagnosis like i rarely send a kid that i think is chronically constipated to gastroenterology mm-hmm. because i can see the signs and i can handle that myself but it is a thing that happens often you have somebody where the problem is chronic constipation. And so they have really bad pains and they have all these symptoms and yeah. they're not happy with the, what you tell them. And so as a busy, as a busy pediatrician, you send them to gastroenterology, knowing the gastroenterology is going to take a look at them, maybe do some tests and then say, yeah, you don't have X, Y, or Z. You have constipation. Like right. you expect that the specialists will do a differential diagnosis. This happens all the time a kid passes out, was that a seizure? Neurology is going to figure it out, right? So I was like, I don't think that you're one of those two out of 10,000 people who is transgender, but I'm going to send you to the gender clinic and then they'll figure out if you are. But they just affirmed immediately and she started testosterone. She got her top surgery in the summer between graduating high school and starting college. And Mm. of all my trans patients, she's the only one that did go to college. So I guess she's doing okay. I guess she's a success story. Yeah. And then I had a few more and it seemed to always be troubled kids with ADHD, kids who are on the spectrum. Yeah. And they all got immediately affirmed. And the ones that I kept seeing, like the ones with ADHD, I was seeing them every three months for med checks. Yeah. They they weren't blossoming. They weren't thriving. They Mm -hmm. were just working in an icky job and staying in a cheap apartment and yeah. Not happy with their social life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was my experience. But I went to the 2019 American Academy of Pediatrics National Conference. It was in New Orleans. This is before the pandemic. And I wanted to see if I could talk to other pediatricians. And I did find that most 
rank and file pediatricians were confused by this whole thing in 2019. Yeah. Looking for information, yes. but definitely not ready to sign on the dotted line. Just what is this? This doesn't make sense. And I attended my regional meeting, which was early in the morning in like a hotel conference room. And my region is Oregon, Washington, Idaho, Alaska, Hawaii. And there was eventually a place where I could stand up and ask a question. So I stood up and I said that I'm concerned about that kids are being diagnosed 100% that, you know, that this care isn't evidence-based. And the guy at the dais said, the way that you can try to influence what the American Academy of Pediatrics does is you submit a resolution to the annual leadership conference and then it'll get voted up or down. And I was like, oh, okay. And then when the meeting was over, I went up to him asking, all right, if I'm going to submit a resolution, where do I send it? Who, what's the email? Is there a place? Is there a website? And I could tell from his reaction, he was totally cooperative, but I could tell from his reaction that telling people they should submit a resolution was his go-to for annoying people. And I was one of the first people to actually seem like I was going to do it. But I was already in Segum at that point. And so I knew that I had other people, researchers who could help me with uh, things like writing up a paper and having references and stuff like that. So right. as it turned out, the deadline was in a week, but I did submit a resolution it, the meeting got delayed because the next spring when it was, when the meeting was supposed to happen was the lockdown. And yeah. so that was 2020. And because I didn't have a sponsor, my resolutions died a quiet death. Mm -hmm. And then in 2021, a different pediatrician, Sarah Palmer from Indiana, submitted a resolution also expressing concern about what was happening with pediatric gender medicine. And she didn't have a sponsor when she submitted it. But then at the meeting in 21, she did get a second. And so it did get voted on but it got voted down by the leadership. However, mm -hmm. the interesting thing that happened in 21 was that because we were still in lockdown with the pandemic, they did a new thing where they put all the resolutions up on the website and they invited us all, the rank and file pediatricians, to interact with the resolutions, to read them, to give them a thumbs up or a thumbs down, to leave comments. And her resolution got a lot of interactions from the yep. pediatricians. Now, there's... Theoretically, 67,000 pediatricians in the American Academy of Pediatrics. And I'm not talking thousands of interactions. It's more like hundreds or maybe yeah. even dozens. But it was in the top five or four in terms of engagement. Mm. And then the engagement that it got was overwhelmingly positive. There were people who were like, oh, this is transphobic. This shouldn't happen. But most of the comments were like, yes, I am also concerned. So the resolution was a statement of concern or it was a call for a comprehensive evidence review? It was not a call for a systematic review of the evidence, I don't think. Okay. I'm sorry. I should go back and I should go back and read that so my story is straight. But it was just a concern that we're doing these things to children and they have a lot of they have a lot of morbidity or mortality and there's not a strong evidence base. So by, I think even by then, yeah. Mm -hmm. So by 2020, as late as 2020, uh -huh. you, not everybody had gotten marching orders or everybody had gotten marching orders. The, they had issued a directive or guidance. The guidance like, was issued in 2018. Down, 
yeah. it was pretty quiet though. Like I honestly, I discovered James Cantor's published paper called mm. Fact Checking the AAP. I right. found that before I found the thing he was fact checking. Right. Because it was done fairly quietly. I, as far as I know, it wasn't so, like a big out. It wasn't, there wasn't a big rollout. So the, the typical politician, as late as that moment, after mm -hmm. the AAP had issued guidance and Cantor had, it's fair to say, dismantled it in his critique, didn't really, hadn't gotten a memo saying like, we, we're a trans, we're a trans affirming organization and you're supposed to, as a, one of our members, you're supposed to be affirming kids. And most of them had, were not were not seeing the phenomenon that you were. They weren't seeing the phenomenon that Littman was, which is like clusters of girls. They weren't even right. seeing what you were, or were they? <laughs> I think that I think that this was growing, and probably most pediatricians had seen at least a few by 2020. I remember talking to a friend of mine who I trained with back in the 90s at Children's Hospital Los Angeles, and she's still practicing in sort of Western Los Angeles. And I'm trying to, I'm trying to tell her how crazy this hall is. And she's just like, this whole thing, it's very complicated and it's confusing and I don't know what to do. And so I just want to refer to the specialists. Mm. And right. then my response is, yeah, but the specialists aren't doing any, they're not behaving like specialists. They're not doing a differential diagnosis. They're not figuring out which kids to treat. They're treating them all. But she just didn't want to, she didn't want to hear that part. She just wanted to refer to the specialist. She wanted to take it off her plate, give right. it to the specialist, not her problem anymore. So that's the sort of modal pediatrician. Yeah. Overburdened all, always, because they all are. And then they just want to get it off their plate. And there's get a document out there. Infections and babies. And, there's yeah. a document out there that they may or may not know about saying, this is right. This makes sense. Can you say what the paper says? And then, and what does sure, the Cantor say in the, response to it? <laughs> the 2018 statement is a, is fascinating for a few reasons. One is that it has a single named author, Jason Rafferty. Hmm. And Jason Rafferty was still in his residency, I believe, when he approached the American Academy of Pediatrics leadership about this. The paper came out in October, and I think he finished his residency in July. Mm. He is a protege of Michelle Forcier. And Michelle Forcier, if any of your viewers or listeners have seen the documentary by Matt Walsh called What is a Woman? She was the star, I think, of that mm -hmm. film. Right. She's the blue-haired lady with the flowing clothing who asked if a chicken cries. Right. Can a chicken commit suicide? Right. So I think of her as the chicken lady. So he's a protege of the chicken lady and she's a true believer. Mm. She's not part of the American Academy of Pediatrics leadership. Yeah. She's just an attending physician at a highly ranked training program. And he was a high powered student and he worked under her and he got really excited about this. And I'm guessing that he went to the leadership of the AAP and he's, ooh, ooh, we got a new, we got a new civil rights thing. And trans is the new gay, and we need to be on the right side of history. And the AAP needs to come out with a statement saying that we support trans rights. And I always imagined that the leadership who are more my age were, oh, yeah, I want to be on the right side of history. So why don't you write something up and we'll take a look. And then he did. And somebody felt a little weird about it because there's this odd statement at the end that says 
that this, this statement was drafted and reviewed and every single part of this was all Jason Rafferty and he's solely responsible. <laughs> like he checked his own work, which is crazy, which is really crazy. It was solely his work because the paper tells it says that. so. <laughs> yeah, it says that this is, he's solely responsible. And I'm like, I've never seen that on an AAP document before that there's one person, one young person who's solely responsible. So somebody felt a little icky about this, felt, oh, I don't know about this. But they went ahead and published it, and then various committees also co-signed it. And But as James Cantor, he looked at it, and what it says, if you have a child who comes to you and says that, they're, that they were born a girl, but they're actually a boy, or vice versa, there are three things you could do. One is you could try to talk them out of that, and that's conversion therapy, mm. and it's evil and bad. And then they yeah. gave references, but all the references are just about giving electric shocks to adult male homosexuals. None of the references have anything to do with kids because there are no papers about conversion therapy on trans kids. So they said, if you try to talk them out of it, that's conversion therapy and it's evil and bad. Or you could just hold space for them and try to keep them in a holding pattern and see what happens as they get older, which was the standard of care at the time. That's called watchful waiting. And that's where we got the statistics, the pre-2010 statistics, that anywhere from 66 to 88% of kids mm. who maintain a cross-sex identity will lose that as they move into puberty. And a majority of them will figure out that the reason they've been gender non-conforming is they're actually gay. Mm -hmm. Not all of them, but a majority of them. Right. So that was always, that was the pre-existing standard of care. But this statement is telling that is also evil and bad. Or mm. you could affirm them, which yes. is you recognize that only the child knows who they really are. Mm. And, uh, and then they went and described all the steps yes. of affirming a child. So that affirmation is uh, very contrary to a diagnostic practice it's unlike anything else done in any other medicine, or is there anything that comes close to that in any other part of medicine? I can think of no situation where you take a patient's, as particularly a pediatric patient's self-diagnosis at face value. Mm. If, if adolescent has anorexia, they are sitting before you, they are dangerously thin, and they're telling you, that they're horribly fat and they need to restrict their intake or do crazy exercise. Mm. And we do not affirm them in this. Yes. We don't say, ah, yes, I see how you're saying that. Right. There's definitely ADHD. I, sometimes it seems like in some adult ADHD that we're mm. doing that kind of a thing. Somebody comes in and they're like, I read all the articles, I've got ADHD. Mm -hmm. And then the doctors, yeah, you've got ADHD and you go from there. But at least for me as a pediatrician, I have to have, I have to have input from professionals who know the kid in a setting outside the home to yeah. see, are there all these behaviors and have they been there for a while since, since they were mm -hmm. little and do they persist? Cause sometimes you'll have a parent who's like somehow hoping that ADHD meds are good behavior pills. If I put them on these pills, then they'll behave. And I always say, I don't have any good behavior pills. All I have are pills that help 
some kids focus. And if there's a huge disconnect between what the teacher sees and what the parent sees, then I'm like, yeah, I can't give that diagnosis. But anyway, putting that aside, I've never, there's no other thing. And especially in a situation where there is no blood test, there is no brain scan, there's no detailed questionnaire that will give us hundred percent confidence that we've got the diagnosis correct. We've got nothing. We're flying blind. You've taken a subjective feeling and you have turned it into a, a dogma, but also you have pretended that dogma, that sort of quasi-religious dogma, turned it into a, simply by assertion, into a medical entity, right? And Yeah. And what's bizarre to me is that when it comes to adult trans women, they don't need to have any surgery. Some mm. of them don't even shave off their beards. Like it's like for the adults, anything goes and mm. trans is just a feeling and we just need to recognize them and affirm them in their new chosen identity, which might change from day to day. But with the kids, it's very important that we start medicalizing them right away. Mm even though the burden of that, the medical burden of that is, is very heavy. Now, there is an underlying trend that would more or less be coextensive, I think, with your career, maybe less so among pediatricians than others, of people who do their research on the internet and then a kind of consumer model of medicine and then like direct pharmaceutical marketing where mm. you have patients show up and they have this, and the doctor, in order to establish their authority, has to work to break that down. And just be like, look, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to do the tests. We're going to diagnose you. And we're not going to accept your, you came to me as a doctor. We're not going to accept your self-diagnosis. Right. I don't know if that happens. I often with... say, no, I often say Dr. Google is a bad doctor. Right. Yeah. 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 But so I guess that's an underlying trend that somehow really metastasized in this case where they really managed to take this non-observable subjective entity and imbue it with the, the power to override any other kind of judgment and, in fact, to make it a dogma that any other kind of medical judgment on the part of the clinician is a form of harm that, it, that you're not actually allowed to do. Mm -hmm. That's the affirmative model. That's where it ended up. And that affirmative model is, so, is actually fully spelled out in the AAP's document. Yeah. In 2018, they went ahead. They declared this is the way you do it. And yes. it was full on affirmative model, not just, just to affirm. gender clinicians, but to 67,000 uh, right. pediatricians. There's only one way to know who's mm -hmm. trans. Yeah. And that is you ask them. Mm -hmm. And then th the little child shall lead them. Right. Whatever the child says yeah. is the truth. So you read the Cantor thing and then you read the underlying paper and you're like, how does this relate to any other kind of medical guidance mm -hmm. from AAP or any other entity? And you saw the, you saw a big gap there. I did. I did. And I had, and back at, back in my practice, I had a 12 year old who was offered uh, puberty blockers at the first visit. Mm. And I was just really shocked by that. It did, I didn't see the medical, I, I just couldn't see the point of that at all, given mm -hmm. the side effects of puberty blockers. Right. And so, yeah, so this was all happening at once and I found other doctors who were concerned and I'm in Segum. And so now I'm swimming in it right now. I'm right. just 
soaking in it. So and, you were not uh, a founder of Segment. Segum. Segum existed. I am a founder before. of Segum. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. You found I'm other a doctors. Founder of Segum. I found other created, doctors. And right. then you and, and you created Segum. And Genya. No, I would say Genya Abrazese mm. created Segum. Okay. She is not an MD. Yeah. But she's my co-author uh-huh. on all those papers and. She deserves a PhD at this point, right. <laughs> but yeah, she's, she, she's worked in the medical field, but she's right. not a doctor, So, but so she you... was the person who mm. found me. Like I must ah. have said something. I have this little Twitter account with anonymous avatar and I said something gender questioning. And then she reached out to me. She's oh, are you in Portland? And, and then we met in person and things went from there. Okay. So you saw, based on Cantor's critique, that Mm -hmm. the guidance is this Twilight Zone-like departure from any medical standard you'd seen before. Uh, Then you're like, oh, I wonder what other uh, evidence is out there. And then you saw the you saw that the, the Dutch studies or the gold standard mm-hmm. and you then you took a look at that. <laughs> right. I mean, at fir- I didn't see the flaws at first, mm. but I mean, I immediately saw that they were very small. And right. I also, one thing I focused in right away was that mm. in the original Dutch study, yeah. they told the parents not to do a social transition of their child. Yes. And this specific language about telling like a mom refers to her daughter and then the cl- the Dutch clinician is, no, you do not have a daughter. You yeah. have a son mm. who wants to be a, a woman. And when he's older, we can do some things to help him look more like a woman. We're not like they, they kept reality checking mm. their participants. Right. So, and they were providing a lot of counseling and they were trying very hard to weed out yeah. The kids, because they knew what the literature was, which was that two thirds to to 90% of kids who assert this when they're little will give it up as they head into puberty and figure out who they are. So they were trying very hard to isolate the like true trans, whatever you could think of that. And that was what I focused on at first. It was later that I realized that this is not like it is. They started with 110. They ended up with 55. Mm. They really just did them as they, as they followed them, as they met the criteria, which means that they were cherry picking the best patients. Mm. And even with that one out of the 55 died from surgical complications. Yeah. Yeah. So So two killed themselves in the NIH study they mm-hmm. killed one of them in the gold standard study. Yeah. Uh, and so, so at first you were impressed, oh, Prisha Mosley shows up and they're like, oh, you actually have borderline personality disorder or whatever it is that she's spoken about. And right. we're not going to, we're not going to trans you. And that would be so, the hope. Yeah. So at first you were like, oh, great. They're, they are, they're making a real effort to do differential diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And they're aware of the fact that that most people will desist on their own and they're trying to find the one third who would not desist on their own. They're yeah. making those efforts and good for them. But then you saw. <laughs> but then that, I saw what was happening in my with, town with the, with the questionnaires. <laughs> mm. Right. Yeah. With the questionnaires. What? Yeah. No, they asked, they asked them. Oh, okay. Yeah, so the, then we saw that their strongest positive results 
right. were on a thing called the Utrecht gender dysphoria scale, right. which is they have a boy scale and a girl scale. And for the boys, it's got questions like, I hate my erections. And for the girls, it's got questions like, I hate my periods. And then you right. agree or disagree with the statements. But what they did in the Dutch study was after they did sex reassignment surgery on their patients, they switched the scales. Yeah. And so they gave the natal males the girl scale, right. which is asking, do you hate your periods? And they're going to say no, <laughs> because they don't have any periods. And they're going right. to ask the natal females, do you hate your erections? And they're going to say no, because they're not having any erections, or at least not any unwanted ones, because you have to pump a little pump thing to right. make it happen. And so, of course, the scales, of course, the scores improved, because... When, when yeah, you so realize once I realized that, that it's just, oh my God, this is not even that strong. So when you realize that, mm -hmm. and it's like, how can this be science? How can this be medicine? And how can this be the gold standard, the best evidence we have? How can this, this be the practice? foundation of an entire new pediatric subspecialty? And there's like a, a new gender clinic every few months. So anybody that States. does a comprehensive review of the evidence and you'll provide your description of what that is, we'll confront that same question that you did. Mm -hmm. And when the uh, Swedes and the Finns, they did their comprehensive evidence review, mm -hmm. and when Florida did it, they confronted that same issue. This yeah. is the best evidence that we have. And, and then realize, oh, what, how did we go ahead with this when, on, on the basis of this? Yeah, how did we get here? I don't know, but yes. Finland, it is interesting because Rita Kertekaltialo was like a, an established pediatric psychiatrist in Finland. And the way I remember her telling her story, sort of people from the Finnish national health system came to her and they said, gender medicine is the new thing. We need, Finland needs to have a gender clinic. You're going to set it up. And so mm -hmm. then she took a look at the papers, at the Dutch papers, and she's, these don't seem super strong. Finland is a small country and I've been told to set this up. So I'm going to set this up. And she <laughs> started running a gender clinic and she published, I believe in 2015 before she published, before I got into this, that in her experience, children who came in who were very stable and solid and the only complaint they had was that they've been misgendered their whole life they did okay they did okay with all this stuff but if the kids came in and they had any other issues this did not help with the other issues and this is what has this is the american the current american assertion yeah. is that any other problems that a trans kid, I would say a child with gender dysphoria has is because of minority stress, yeah. because this is all put into a civil rights framework mm -hmm. and being trans is a thing that you are. And so if you're having depression, it's because it's hard to be trans. If you're mm -hmm. anxious, it's because there's a lot of transphobia in the world, things like that. But what she found was that transition in Finland, which is a fairly liberal country, did not help the anxiety, certainly didn't help the autism, didn't help the ADHD, didn't help the depression, didn't help the OCD, anything else. And yeah. those kids did not thrive when they were transitioned. Mm. So she was getting more skeptical. Finland did a systematic review of the evidence and 
discovered that the evidence base was weak. In Sweden, there was a scandal because a kid who I believe was put on puberty blockers at age 12 and mm. kept on them till age 16, mm. developed osteoporosis to the point of having stress fractures in the spine. Mm. And that girl mm. is going to have back. It's not a thing that you can fix. And that, and there they had a investigative news t television program that did a four part series called the trans train. And mm. that led to Sweden looking into the evidence. And they also decided that the evidence base was not strong and they were going to stop doing transitions on all the kids that showed up. They were only going to do puberty blockers as part of a tightly controlled clinical trial. And then England had a lawsuit, Kira Bell, mm. who was a young woman with a difficult background who was fighting her own homosexuality and went to the gender clinic, was medicalized, and then changed her mind. She was one of the first well-known detransitioners. And she had a lawsuit not looking for damages for herself. It's interesting. The British law, the courts are different in Britain. So mm. in America, you'd be like, you owe me $5 million, you ruined my life. But she mm. was really just looking for mm. a change in policy. Yeah. And because of that sort of brouhaha, the National Health Service of England commissioned a systematic review of the evidence. And they asked Hillary Cass, who's an established pediatrician, to take a look at all that. And her report, which is available, said that there are many paths into gender dysphoria and there are many paths out. And yes. there's no particular evidence saying that we need to do this medical path. There are other ways mm. to deal with it for most right. of these kids. And she recommended that the Tavistock Clinic be closed. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting. It isn't quite closed yet. So we'll have to yes. see how that goes. There was a deadline and we've blown past that deadline. We have and, blown uh, through that deadline. I think it was in the yeah. spring. Uh, um, so yeah, that's England. And Wales, and then Finland, Sweden, England, and now Norway and Denmark have also yes. decided that this is experimental treatment. So they have, they saw the same thing that you saw. They saw the thing that you published. Anybody who looks at this is going to see that thing. Yeah. Is you the think. AAP going to see it when they do their comprehensive uh, evidence well, review? Right. Is there anything so, else to see? <laughs> is there anything else to see? Yeah, it's... What WPATH did, because WPATH tried to commission systematic reviews of the evidence for their SOC 8, mm. and they ended up saying a systematic review is not possible. Mm. And that's how they wiggled their way out of it. Mm. And it's not possible because there's no there. Uh -huh. But so it's possible that the AP will say, we're going to do this. And then they'll spend some time and some money and then say, yeah, it's not actually possible. It can't be done mm. because okay. we don't like. But the point of a systematic review of the evidence is that you pre-publish. Like mm. we were talking with the NIH that we can see what they were planning to look at in their study. With a systematic review of the evidence, you pre-publish what your search criteria are going to be mm -hmm. when you're finding the papers that you're going to include in your review. Yeah. And so you'll be like all, all languages from this date to this date with these keywords. Mm. And the idea there is now that you've published that, then you go on and you do your review. Part of the review is that you need to 
put put all of the papers through a rigorous analysis for bias. Hmm. And you're basically trying to pick apart each paper and find the weaknesses. Right. And then that should be the major part of your review. But if you write up your review and you leave something out because it doesn't contribute to the conclusion you're trying to make, yeah. somebody else can address right. that. They can say, I ran your search yeah. and Bostis at Al 1927, like you didn't, you, it's not in your, it's not here. You left yeah. it out. Right. So that's why it's supposed to be more, more unbiased and you're more answerable to critics. Mm. Whereas the overwhelming number of reviews that you see, yes. they just pick the papers. They pick a group of papers that they think are going to help them make their point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what we know, that one. Oh is always... God. Yeah. The what we right. know. Cornell. Yeah. I'm going to finally remember that's Cornell and not Yale. I always think of Yale. Yale hates us because we made them do a retraction <laughs> on the Brandstrom paper. Uh-huh. Because that was one of Segum's first wins. Mm-hmm. Was so everything. That. And so the, uh, there's such a will to just abandon any kind of normative practice. Oh, yes. And, and yet there, you still have these instances where you're able to hold them to account. where they have Occasionally, to, yeah. They have yeah. to ruefully say, yeah, you got us. And, mm-hmm. and so you're vesting faith in a normative process, being able to function here, despite the stated and openly stated will of all these people to just be like, yeah. just to like to declare like the new president of the AAP, even while they're doing this, he's making these statements about how it's necessary. We all know, we know what we need to know, even though that's the question that we're supposed to be answering. He's making these conclusory statements right at the beginning of the process. And yet you're still trusting that the process can be made to work despite the evidence of their, I don't want to call it malfeasance. They gave you the runaround for years. Okay. You're assigning trust to me. What makes you think I'm trusting? You're moving ahead with the process. I am working with the process. Yes. Yes. And we are, and you're seeking an outcome and saying that the outcome is. And things are happening. How many years? I didn't really finish that story because like I said that in 21, Dr. Palmer's resolution got a lot of engagement. And -hmm. then in 22, she and I and three other pediatricians submitted Mm -hmm. a resolution that specifically our single ask was that the American Academy of Pediatrics conduct a systematic review of the evidence. Right. And that year they came up with a new rule because right. I think they were a little embarrassed by the way it went with the online engagement in 21. So in 22, they said, okay, new rule, you can only comment and you can only give a thumbs up or a thumbs down on sponsored resolutions. Mm. And so there was a place on the webpage where you could click and you could get a large document that had the text of all the resolutions. And our resolution was number 27 and it was in there and you could read it. But then in order to do any interaction, you had to go to a different part of the webpage and click. And then there was a drop down list and the drop down list just jumped from resolution number 26 to resolution number 28. So yeah. what people did was they left comments on resolution number 28 saying, Hey, I wanted to comment on number 27. I think that's a good idea. All that kind of stuff. And so that got written up like in the daily mail and it did not, we did not get a sponsor. And so it didn't get voted on. And then in 23, they announced 
that they had another new rule, which was that the leadership reserved the right to determine if a submitted resolution was necessary. And if the leadership determined that your resolution was not necessary, they were just going to, they were just going to quietly throw it in the trash. Mm. And they announced that new rule prior to the deadline for submitting right. it, which was April the, 1st. The, the Mason and, rule. Uh, yeah. As yeah, it is the, formally known, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was always joking that eventually they'll just be like, if your name is Julia Mason, you're not allowed. <laughs> right. And, and so we really aimed our resolution this year in 23 to at that, to explain why this resolution was necessary. Yes. And I guess they decided the optics would be too horrible if they hit it. And then we could go to a major newspaper and say, look at our resolution and then look mm -hmm. what they did to it. So they did yes. go ahead. But now what was different, you still can't comment on it because it's not sponsored. Yeah. And they had a new thing on the webpage that said comments will be moderated uh, and comments can only apply to the resolution yeah. at hand. You're not allowed to. They control what is sponsored and what is not sponsored? or They can... control what is sponsored. It appears that they control what is sponsored and not sponsored. I have reached out mm -hmm. to many people who are mm -hmm. in the AAP leadership, and I generally just get ghosted. Mm. Just nobody wants to engage. We had a person who was interested in sponsoring our 22 resolution. And then they attended some sort of leadership meeting. And then they were like, yeah, like the statements they, they go up for, they go up for approval every five years and next year is five years for the 2018 statement. So this really isn't needed. Mm -hmm. Sorry. And so we're like, wow, what did they say to you? We don't know, but it did seem like pressure was being applied to anybody who wanted to help us on this task of getting the AAP to do the thing. And then when they finally did do the thing two weeks ago, they didn't mention any of us. They just, <laughs> they just, it just showed up new. It, this it is our new idea. So until the day they announced they were, they had given in that they were doing what you wanted them to do entirely uh -huh. Yeah. until that moment that you read yeah. that press release, as far as you're concerned, they were continuing with the years long process of doing everything they could to thwart any possibility of this ending up on their agenda. Yes. I had no idea until I got a call from a New York times journalist. Yeah. So that's who had better sources than me. I had, right. for me, the AP leadership is a black box. <laughs> I really right. don't know what's going on there. Yeah, yeah. I've realized it's not as democratic as I thought. I've been voting in these president elections. <laughs> For years, yeah. decades, but right. it's only recently that I realize that every two years they present us with two candidates. Yeah, there, there's no open primary system. It's like with a toddler: it's do you want the red shirt or do you uh, want the blue shirt? It's the appearance uh, uh, of democracy. But yeah, the AP leadership is a black box. But the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times apparently had some inroads into that. Yeah, and they had some ideas about what happened. So in 2018, there was somebody who had enough concern about the aberrant quality of the guidance that they ended up signing on to, to put all the blame uh, on its author. Uh, a little caveat. But within two to three years, they're just fully on board and they don't want to face any, and you have no idea how that happens or you have no, no there's no defector, I don't know what there's no leaker. To bear. I mean, I've always been operating off the idea that they made an initial error 
because they weren't paying enough attention and they were just being good liberals and they wanted to be on the right side of history. <laughs> and civil rights are always like civil rights are unpopular at first. Yeah, this right. is a truism. At first, when you're trying to have a new civil right, a new group achieve civil rights, it's unpopular. And so it felt okay for them to be ahead of the population, but they just, they literally didn't check Dr. Rafferty's work. They didn't check the references. They didn't check that the claims he was making were backed up by the references he was referring to. They just took it at face value based on his enthusiasm or something. And then I've always felt that it was just a circling the wagons at that point. Sort of the cover up is worse than the crime. Mm. Like the initial crime was just being dumb, just being over busy and credulous. And then after that, they didn't want to admit that they were over busy and credulous. And so they didn't want to walk it back and they just get deeper and deeper. And the person who really runs the AAP is Mark Del Monte. Mm. And he's not a, he's not a pediatrician. He's a lawyer. Yeah. And I think as a lawyer, he has that attitude. Like if you ever admit you were wrong, you're opening yourself up to lawsuits. Yeah. So right. he really doesn't want to admit that any mistakes were made. Okay. And so they're finding a way to get there. That's your, that's I your think belief. they're going to try to find a way to get there without making an open admission of error. So double talk is their method and yeah. open contradiction is their method. And, but they will get there, but that's based on, it's not based on hope. It's based on your reading of things, but there is some hope also. But maybe. there's also some hope in there too, definitely. Oh. But I just think that... They read the Cantor Review and they see what the Cantor Review says. And they ask themselves, does this reference actually say what they are saying it says? And they know the answer is no. But did they read the Cantor Review? They didn't read it before. I don't think they did. Oh, they've never done it. No, they, they... I think they're just like, oh, those are haters, haters. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, yeah, I really don't think they did. So they're that lazy that they're willing so. to put I themselves think they're that lazy. They're on that the lazy line and, distracted. and put themselves on the precipice on the basis of something that everybody else increasingly now sees is just garbage. <laughs> I have had worries. I've had like existential worries for the American Academy of Pediatrics because yeah. if there is a lawsuit, if there is a large lawsuit, yeah. the, the Endocrine Society came out with guidelines in 2017 yes. right. where they specified exactly how you would do this. And they came up with the creative idea of saying you should start the puberty blockers at 10 or 2. That is not what the Dutch did. But they were very much in that, in those guidelines, they were very much, look, we're just the mechanics. We're just, we have no idea how to determine which children you should be doing this to. But if you find a trans child, if you know that you have one of these kids, one of these unicorns, yeah. then we'll tell you how it's done. Mm. And then this is how it's done. Yeah. But it was the American Academy of Pediatrics that sort of leapt into that breach. And they're like, oh, we'll tell you. We'll tell you how to know which kids. Yeah. yeah. You ask them. Right. And I don't know. WPATH is definitely at risk, right? I feel like they're the ones who just literally lay it out there like, oh, this is how it's done. And, it, and what their SOCA is crazy. Yeah. And once I saw that they dropped the ethics chapter and they kept the eunuch chapter, I was like, okay, that organization is lost. It's just, 
yes. lost to the activists. So, mm-hmm. and I, but the thing is, I don't really worry about whether WPATH is, is sued out of existence. I'm not really a big fan of WPATH. I don't think right. they've really made the world a better place, but I am a fan of the AAP or I always was like, I thought that they were there to represent, they are there to represent pediatricians, but that also means that they're there to represent kids. And I, I feel like they've done a lot of good things trying to campaign for CHIP, the Children's Health Insurance Program, and things mm. like expanding Medicaid to cover more kids. I think those are all really good things yeah. that the AP has been doing, mm-hmm. and I don't want them to be sued out of existence. But I do sometimes have some fears that's a thing that could happen mm-hmm. because they've really stepped into it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they did it without doing any of their due diligence, it seems, yes, because they if they really had done their it. due diligence. So you think they know that they're a bit on the precipice and the indications are through the statement made in the wall street journal where they're beginning this process of contradicting themselves but also starting to unwind things maybe or, mm-hmm. or, or laying the foundations for it and it's a somewhat optimistic view a somewhat hopeful view but also one that can make sense of the weird course that they seem to be taking yeah. they have to continue to stiff arm the haters and they're going to keep doing that and, but then say under our own initiative, maybe there's some things that we're going to look at in our comprehensive evidence review. Do you put it be, beyond them to say, oh, we did a t- comprehensive evidence review with the new Jack Turbin, right? This uh, new, newly uh, has done a review and he's found that, that it, in fact, it's settled science. Like you, you think that is so far beyond, even given what they've already done, that they just wouldn't try it, I, that they yeah. would be caught? I, I look for if they do that'll be hilarious and it'd be interesting it'd be amusing but I just don't be think very it dark, stand up it? also so, dark most much of this is very dark but but the thing yeah. is you think it wouldn't stand up it's like is going to denounce us is anything more than that going to happen that's the question <laughs> ah yeah okay I think what is happening mm. is that this is getting out to the population at large I, if you look at if you look at men and women's sports. For yeah. the longest time, it was just like, look, this is done. This is done. Trans women are women and just sit down and shut up. This is the way it is. And Leah Thomas's teammates were told that if they had a problem with a six foot four, the penis dude <laughs> watching them jiggle into their competitive swimsuits, <laughs> that they could be provided with therapy to yeah. help them unlearn their prejudices. And now the swimming association is saying, no, no male who's gone through any part of male puberty can Mm. be on the women's team. So that didn't happen. That, that, that happened because the population cottoned on to how crazy this was. Yeah. And I think that the population is beginning to pick up on the fact that pediatric medical transition is crazy. Yeah. The strongest factor seems to be detransitioners. Once you've met a detransitioner, mm. you just you can no longer believe this sort of like you said pseudo-religious idea that people have a gendered soul, that there's something in you that's internal, eternal and immutable. Yeah. And you know it and nobody else knows it. And everybody needs to get in line with what it is. Yeah. Because if that were true, then there could not be detransitioners. Yes. But- so you have that claim. And then, and yet you have Germany saying uh, you can change your gender once a year. They yeah. can do it. Yeah. 
So you can self ID once a year. And then we have mm -hmm. these, these trans, this trans person who has a trans husband and a trans child. This is uh, Amanda person. Knox. Yeah. yeah. And who, then who and posted, then has... who tweeted in 2019 yeah. that I have a trans husband and a trans son. I, I think about gender all the time. Have I considered it? Yes. Am I trans? No. Trans is not a contagion. Yeah. Yeah. And then four years later, I'm trans. Yeah. After going yeah. through four other intermediary uh, phases along the way. So we have these people and demanding recognition at every single one of them, and it would be hateful not to extend that definition to them. So it's this reductio right. ad absurdum, one at a time, and then, of course, the cascade But it is of things. getting really absurd. As time goes on, it's just getting more and more absurd. And it's getting more and more absurd, but, and the, but the coercive power ramps up in accordance with that. Because yeah. right now I have this thing where like my kid goes to the, a forest school and there are non-binary people there and the Civil Rights Commission says that, and we just ask them, don't correct these nine-year-olds. You can, and they're like, oh, we have a legal obligation to do it. And it's going to, it, it's going to turn in Canada, the civil, the Human Rights Commission told, instructed them mm -hmm. that they have to correct these nine-year-old kids and be like, oh, that person there, that's, that person is neither male nor female. And, and they're hastening to do it. And it's, can I, I can't just isolate my child from society. And I don't know what that's to say what about That's what they're driving us to do. And I had a conversation with my daughter and I'm like, look, foot binding happened in China. It's like societies lose their mind and they mm -hmm. do things. And you happen to be unfortunate enough, in addition to like having been around for a pandemic and having that eat away part of your childhood, you happen to be unfortunate enough that you're going to have to live in the midst of this thing that's happening and we're doing yeah. what we can to roll it back. But it's on that scale of just like societal malfeasance that we have to witness and combat it. And the people who remain reasonable and reality-based and whose positions are supported by the supermajority of the population are yet nonetheless the hated pariahs of the of the institutional consensus yeah and and it's i don't think any of us anticipated having this be a part of our lives and i don't think no. you anticipated that in the year 2018 no first... i did not anticipate having posters with my picture and name put up around my neighborhood oh they've done that saying yeah yeah sure. okay yeah that's happened i thought you said you were fine in Portland. Oh, I'm uh, fine. I'm okay. fine. So that happened and I you mean, were fine. But somebody that. did get out of their basement and yeah. do some cut and paste Xeroxing. Okay. And, and but the, what did it the, say? It said transphobe it, or whatever? Yeah, it said I was a, an ally of Ron DeSantis. Okay. You know. <laughs> <laughs> How recently and, was that? <laughs> oh, that was... Um, it was around Thanksgiving and I honestly don't remember if it was last year or the year before. Okay. Yeah. I guess it must have been when Florida was doing things. So, yeah. Yeah. So it's become a partisan issue. It's become crazy. You have the president saying, the president of the United States saying gender affirming care is medically necessary and so mm -hmm. on. And you're, you're a lifelong liberal, a lifelong resident of Portlandia. And we're quite comfortable. I'm not a lifelong resident of Portlandia. <laughs> but anyway, I, I am uh, living here. Uh, Long-term resident. Long-term yeah. resident of Portlandia. And <laughs> I guess... We're not out of step in any way, I don't think, prior to this. 
Yeah, it's, it's an interesting <laughs> situation that we're in, definitely. Yeah. You were telling me about a, a move in California to skip yes. the legislature and do a, a referendum. That sounds fascinating because I, I do think when you poll the population at large, it's different than what the elites yeah. say. So on, on issues, it's going to be about like parental notification. There's three different issues, parental notification of social transition and on that issue, the polling is, yeah, 70-30 overall, 60-40 Democrats. So a supermajority of Democrats are opposed to keeping secrets from their parents about a health condition that, by their own account, comes with a suicide risk from their parents. And it's actually terrifying that 40% of them would oppose that, but I guess not everybody is a parent. And so... If you disambiguate this issue from all the other partisan issues that they've been able to link it to in places like Michigan and elsewhere where they tie reproductive rights right. to, they did that in uh, Oregon too. to gender identity yeah. and just put it directly in the privacy of the voting booth to the public, I, I, we could expect a 60-40 or 70-30 vote and based upon what polls say. And it's a desperate expedient on the one hand, but it also it could be a silver bullet if they can manage it. Yeah, if, I'm just, so, I hope it goes up. I hope, I'm really curious to see what happens with that. Because, Something I would love, I don't have the money for it, but I would yeah, love to do a good scientific poll of pediatricians. Yeah, absolutely. Because I do not think that the majority of pediatricians agree with what the leadership is telling Is us. there a way to poll the 67,000 membership of the AAP? Not could somebody that I do know that? Of. Yeah, I'm sure it could be done. I'm sure that they would have to do of, it. They right, would have like, to do it, but they could a, do it. <laughs> right. There's a movie that I'm in called No Way Back. Yeah. It was Affirmation Generation, but they changed the name to No Way Back. Yeah. And the one of the movie makers had a plan to create a shorter version of the movie, remove remove some of the personal drama and just focus on the, the experts talking yeah, right. and send that to as many pediatricians as possible. Mm -hmm. But it seems like it's, it seems like it's turning out to be difficult. And I don't know if it's difficult because they're running out of money. I saw them making an appeal. Mm. Like they're looking for a, they're looking for an angel donor. So it could be that, that it's a financial issue, or it could be that they're just literally having a hard time right. getting the contact information for all these pediatricians. Mm -hmm. But I know that I get, I'll get junk mail trying to sell me life insurance. And I know they're, it's coming to me because I'm in right. the AP. Yeah. So somebody's right. buying these lists. Sure. There's a list you can buy. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. So yeah, but they're based on, you, you've talked to many pediatricians, and I'm sure you've heard a lot of people take the position of your friend in LA who's, this is crazy, but keep it off my plate. But mm -hmm. the salience of this has increased, obviously. You yes. were uh, in, in 2022, you were there, you filmed that crazy person, like eulogizing right. the, the suicide boldly. Lila Alcorn. Right. So saying that she boldly stepped in front of a truck. She used yes. the word boldly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And everybody there saw that and everybody there is seeing whatever, what is a woman, Tucker Carlson. And so like mm -hmm. the partisan thing, A, turns people off, but it also makes them aware of the issue yeah. and they're seeing the social contagion just building and building. Are you seeing the social contagion just building and building or do you think it's tailing off? Because you do hear from parents being like, yeah, the kids, it's not cool for them anymore. I yeah. think that it's not growing 
by leaps and bounds like it was. I do think the kids themselves yeah. are getting skeptical of this. Right. So that's, and I've had a couple of teenagers tell me that you don't have to do anything medical to be trans. Yes. That is and also I love mean. that. That sounds yeah. great. Right. So if, if that's where we move, I am also cool with that. Okay. And, but it, it, does that then come with the completely unmedicalized trans woman? The, yeah, the, exactly. You know, does um, that mean that the that boys are going to be in the girls locker room and the girls? Yeah. Yeah. Good question. Good yeah, point. But so that's, we want to avoid it's, it's a dual, it's dual containment, really. There's two different things and they're antithetical to each other, but they, both have to be stopped, actually. So I don't know if this is a conversation that's fruitful to have, but I mentioned this email that I got from this, this doctor. I'm recently retired. I know for a fact that 15 years ago, if you were doing this kind of stuff that they are now doing at gender clinics, you would lose your license. It would not, you would not be approved. You would be in trouble. There's, there are just so many levels of review and of and of ethics at hospitals and so on to prevent people from doing things that don't have any evidence base behind it. So could you talk about like the, well, the existing structure of things that had to be corrupted in order to allow this to happen in the first place? I or I guess I'm honestly I'm not sure if I can address that because what I'm aware of is that medicine gets things wrong all the time. Right. I was in medical school. Yeah. I started medical school in the late 80s. Yeah. And that is when they were just beginning to push the idea that pain was the fifth vital sign. And you needed to ask your patient about their level of pain. And if they had a significant level of pain, it's your job to deal with that. We've been under treating pain forever. We need to treat patients' pain. And oh, here's some new meds with which you can treat the pain. And so I was in sort of the indoctrination phase of that, the beginning of that. Yeah. And, and there wasn't any particular evidentiary basis for this. And the whole thing seemed to be based with, was that, is that Pfizer that had OxyContin? I'm it was, sure. No, uh, no, Purdue, yeah. So Purdue had OxyContin and mm. their marketing strategy for OxyContin was that it's a twice a day pain med. Mm. You want to use OxyContin instead of the generics yeah, because it can be dosed twice a day and twice a day is always better than three times a day. So go with okay. Oxy. Yeah. But the problem was it doesn't actually give you pain it doesn't give you pain control for 12 hours. It does yeah. not last for 12 hours. Right. And so the reps, the, the med reps were going back to their bosses and saying, the doctors are telling us that it's not lasting for 12 hours. Yeah. And the response was tell the doctors to use higher doses. Mm. And so you were just getting like more and mm -hmm. then less. And yeah. that's a recipe for developing addiction. Yeah. And that's still happening. I was talking to a, I was seeing a, a young woman for a physical and she's working as a CNA at a yeah. rehab center. And she talked about her patients yelling at her and wanting their pain meds yeah. two or three hours early. And I'm like, oh my God, is that Oxycontin? And yes, uh -huh. it is. Okay. So anyway, so, and the guy that invented the lobotomy got yeah. the Nobel Prize for medicine. And then when they decided it was awful, he did not go to jail. Yeah, yeah. The And really, I don't think it would have disappeared as quickly as it did mm. if people hadn't come up with Thorazine. Mm. Because Thorazine is a medication that achieves a lot of the same things that lobotomy did. It's, it zombifies a person. 
That's yeah. the medicine they're giving people in uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Uh-huh. Yeah. It was a substitution. Got yeah, rid yeah. of lobotomies. I... I'm not as I'm not as confident that that medicine has like this layers upon layers of safety features. Mm, mm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so there was an open field for experimentation. Entrepreneurs could emerge. I heard an interview with Will, Will Malone where he was like, "Look, trans was this gray market activity that you had these very mm. distinct, very small populations of of people that were interested in it and." some doctors who were surgeons or whatever, who out of a kind of freelance curiosity and yeah. whatever, some compassion. That or... wouldn't it be cool. It was an innovative practice yeah. that escaped the lab. Mm -hmm. And it escaped the lab before there was any evidence to back it up. We told menopausal women that they should all take hormone replacement therapy. Yeah. And then we did the big study that showed yeah. that the women getting the hormone replacement therapy had a higher mortality rate. Mm. So. Right. This is the thing that medicines often chases after the shiny object. And I think it's just humans. It's not really that it's medicine. It's just human nature to, so did, to have an idea and to run with it. And then only later you figure out that it wasn't a great idea. There was a fad in the early 2000s of treating difficult kids with second generation antipsychotics. Yeah. Things like Risperdal and Abilify. Mm-hmm. And those were developed for schizophrenia. Mm. They weren't developed for children. Yeah. And the way it seemed to go is there was this one doctor, this one psychologist, psychiatrist who thought it was a good idea. And he started doing it. And the drug companies noticed a spike in prescriptions. And yeah. they found him. And they're like, oh, look at you. What are you doing over here? This is really fascinating. We would like to support you in your important work. And then they supported him in doing research and getting published. And then other doctors start doing it. And I'm not going to say that there are no kids that respond well, because I used to be more anti. I have seen some kids that respond well. Interestingly enough, they seem to be the ones who don't develop ravenous, unrelenting hunger when they're given them, which a yeah. lot of people do. Yeah. And that's how I noticed it in the, again, in the early 2000s, I had kids who were going to the local child psychiatrist. This is when I lived in Wisconsin and yeah. being put on these second generation antipsychotics. And then they were just becoming spherical. They were becoming so obese. Mm -hmm. And then they were zombified, like I talked about with the Thorazine. And yeah, yeah, I guess they're easier to live with, but I was horrified. Yeah. And I became horrified because of the obesity. And then I noticed mm -hmm. the rest of it. Yeah. And that was just literally a little fad. Yeah. And it ran, it's still running, but it was great because those medications are important and required and life-saving for some patients. And so yeah. every formulary mm. in the country yeah. has those medications on the formulary. Right. And they, and so generally the way it works in medicine is once the medicine is available to you, yeah. you can stretch the reasons. Yeah. And so they ran with that and the numbers of prescriptions of kids being given those second generation antipsychotics just skyrocketed. Mm -hmm. And it does seem that's not as big of a scandal. Yeah. But, and it just seems to be slowly backing mm. off. It's not like this. We're not going to end up with people sterilized and dead, but there's a lot of kids out there 
who are morbidly obese mm. because they were difficult to live with. And yeah. someone decided that this medication was what they needed. And so you, you were horrified by this as it was happening. It did not mm -hmm. turn you into a, an AAP. I had fly. small children at the time yeah, yeah. and maybe that slowed me down. Yeah. It did not turn me into it as much of an activist as mm -hmm. this one. So your LA friends, her reaction is the modal reaction. It's the normal yes. reaction. Why was it not your reaction? Why was it not my reaction? I think that I'm just difficult. It's interesting because this is something Stella O'Malley talks about. She says, <laughs> we say that the way you diagnose these kids is they are insistent, persistent, and consistent. Yes. But that really has nothing to do about whether their gender identity is real. That's just personality traits. And I think that she and I both share those personality traits. Mm -hmm. So yeah. some of us are just a little less worried about what the crowd thinks. Mm. And that is something I've been my whole life. I was uh, an odd, I was an odd kid. I, uh, yeah, I had unusual opinions. I had unusual tastes. Mm. I dressed differently. Being different <laughs> has never been a problem for me. And so when I stood up at that meeting of my region to ask, to say, I have a concern. If, if the other people had lasers in their eyes, I would have been dead because everybody was just glaring at me. Like, how could you possibly say something like that? Right. And there was one particular man where I had to literally just look at him, give him eye contact and be like, yes, I see you glaring at me. You can stop now. You know, I'm not going to sit down. I'm going to say my piece. So also I am a pediatrician who has a very unusual professional situation. I work. Yep at that rare beast, the small privately owned pediatric practice. And so it's not my practice, but my boss is a classical libertarian, what you yeah. know, classical West coast libertarian. Mm. And he knows what I'm doing and he supports what I'm doing. Yeah. And I think that's highly unusual. That might be yeah. the main reason that I'm uh -huh. able to speak up right. is I had that personality trait. And then I also had the institutional support. But if you worked for a big uh, corporate, whatever. If then... I was working for Kaiser, I would yeah. not be able to do what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. In fact, when I moved right. from Wisconsin to Portland, I interviewed at Kaiser and Kaiser yeah. looked really good because they have a pension, yeah, yeah. <laughs> actually have a pension. Right. And, and it's definitely profit sharing because pediatricians don't make enough, but it's like the surgeons of Kaiser are putting into it and not getting as much out. So right. it was like financially Kaiser looked good. And I did not get that job. And at the time I was sad that I didn't get that job. And instead I got this job where I had to start at a lower salary and work my way up, yeah. but it's fine now. And yeah. I'm so glad that I didn't mm. work for Kaiser because yeah, if you work for Kaiser or yeah. I, my office is associated with a, a medical system called legacy health. Yeah. Which is a nonprofit. And they just announced last week that they're being subsumed into OHSU, Oregon mm. Health Sciences University. Yeah. And again, I was like, oh my God, I'm so glad I don't work for Legacy. Yeah, right. Because then in a month or two, I'd be an OHSU employee. Yeah. And yeah. that's not going to go well. Mm hmm. Because OHSU is hip deep in this. Yes, right. How did everybody just get dragged into this and then put themselves on a cliff together like a bunch of lemmings? I wish it's, I knew. Uh, That's the $20,000 question. 
Yeah. Uh, there will be books. There are being bo- there are books being written about it now, but there yeah. will be books and many PhD thesis papers in the future trying to figure this out. Right. So like a medical scandal masquerading as a civil rights movement that is taken up by the, the dominant political party of institutional America and all of corporate America, they somehow managed to pull that off. And, and the question is whether that sort of that conjuncture of interests is stronger than the democratic will of the American people, because we still have these 70, 30, 60, 40 splits. But then again, on gay marriage, like back in 1995, uh, the Democratic House of Representatives passed the Defense of Marriage Act and Bill Clinton signed it into law. That's their vision. Their vision is that in 20 years, they will have transformed our sense and in part by just transiting as many kids as they can and getting all these families on the hook and manufacturing their constituency. So in a way, it is a kind of, it is a healthcare dogma and it is a kind, but it also is a way of of providing the kind of political protection that they need because Pelosi is like, oh, I have a granddaughter who's trans and all these people mm. are being are being put on the hook. And as Helen Joyce fame said not so long ago, every one of those people that went all in on, on affirmations is all in for life. They're going to be the... And if you can get enough influential people and they started with the influential mm. people... Except that this treatment, as I said at the yeah. beginning... Right. Is not even as effective as placebo right, yeah. in making people happy. Okay. Yeah. And we really can't mm. trans 25% of the population. <laughs> I think right. that it was at some Ivy League college, it was 30% of the students said they were not. No, at Brown, it's, oh, not cis? Oh, at really? Brown. Yeah, yeah. It, no, no, at Brown, it's 40% something on LGBTQ, but it is mostly bi. Yeah. So it's we're not saying thirty. I don't think anyone is saying thirty percent not cis. But okay, yeah, I guess yeah. by you can not say straight. Thirty percent, forty percent not straight. Not cis straight. Yeah, yeah. and not a lot of that is queer and bi, and so very spicy. expensive. The spicy straights. Very expansive yes. definition of those terms, but yeah, look, a lot of trans, a lot of non-binary, and gender queer, and all that stuff, and. It does seem like, to some degree, the, the country in the future is just going to have to live with wh- whatever that goes with. Although we do see the, this polling now that shows that, like, the percentage of those who, of Zoomers, who are like, you can only, there are only two sexes, it, it's gone down by 18% in three years. And because Zoomers, more than anybody else, really Wait, see... define define Zoomers. What are Zoomers? Zoomers are like under 25 or something oh, like okay. that. Yeah. Right. So the group that is most LGBTQ and the, the group mm-hmm. who are where the social, con- the trans social contagion isn't happening. They also see how they see what non-binary means in practice and large percentage of them are opting out. Okay. In summary, we've just passed this moment mm-hmm. where the thing that you were seeking has happened and and you are cautiously optimistic that there is going to be some kind of turn happening within the medical establishment. You identified AAP as like really a linchpin of this astroturfed pseudo consensus around mm. gender affirming care. And if that piece can be knocked out, maybe not knocked out explicitly, but knocked out through one of these kind of 
dialectical inversions that they seem to have launched on. We can unwind this over time in the way the opiate crap and other bad things have been unwinding. But that's your prediction for the future. That's your yeah. vision of where we're going to be. Yeah, I'd say the opiate is still unwinding, but yes, that's my hope. You are about to embark upon the great crusade. The old myth. The eyes of the world are upon you. Not that in theory. I saw it happen. And then begin to inculcate our babies with these notions. Do you have a martyr complex? Let me tell you, we all make... Do you have a militant attitude relative to the area of civil rights? Your task will not be an easy one. The road ahead will be long. We're going to make sure that society wins.